Um, today we have uh, two speakers, and I will be introducing um, one of them, and, um, and then he will introduce the other. Um, I have the great pleasure of introducing my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Lurie. Um, John is a professor of medicine, orthopedics, and the Dartmouth Institute. He received his BSE in geological engineering from Princeton University, an MD from Stanford, and a master's degree in evaluative clinical sciences from Dartmouth at what we now know as TDI. He um, did his residency and chief residency here at DHMC, and then a faculty development fellowship at the VA in White River Junction before joining the faculty here as a general internist and a hospitalist. He currently serves as the, as the chief of the section of hospital medicine. In addition to his leadership role in clinical operations, John is director of the clinical trials unit at TDI, associate director of the multidisciplinary clinical research center in musculoskeletal disease at Dartmouth, director of the comparative effectiveness core of the New England Pediatric Device Consortium, and co-director of the Center for, for the Translation of Rehabilitation Engineering Advances in Technology, or TREAT, um, which we'll be hearing about more this morning. He served as program lead for the High Value Health Collaborative and is a member of the HVHC Scientific Review Board. I love this part. John describes his overarching research interests as evidence-based decision-making and decision-based evidence-making. <laughs> and that tells you a lot about him, <laughs> with a content focus in low back pain and rehabilitation. He has extensive experience in comparative effectiveness research as physician investigator on the spine, pa spine patient outcomes research trial or sport trial, and as a co-investigator on the multi-centered prospective study of quality of life in adult scoliosis. He has also been the principal investigator of randomized clinical trials of fall prevention in the elderly and decision coaching in lumbar, lumbar spinal stenosis. He's the PI or co-PI in multiple active and past grants, including the NIH-sponsored grant for the TREAT Consortium. He has authored more than 200 peer-reviewed original articles, reviews, book chapters, invited commentaries, and abstracts. He also teaches extensively and across multiple learner levels, bringing um, great clarity to the principles and practice of evidence-based medicine and clinical study design. He's been a career and research mentor for students, residents in medicine and orthopedics, graduate students, and junior faculty. And he's the director of the Dartmouth Orthopedics Clinician Researcher Training Program. John is someone who identifies important questions and problems, designs elegant approaches to addressing them, communicates what he learns with crystalline clarity, and facilitates effective delivery of information and interventions to patients. I think we will appreciate through this morning's discussion how impactful it can be to see this process through from beginning to end. And I'm sorry, John, I did not have an opportunity to touch on your wit, your humor, or your kindness, three of my most favorite characteristics about John. We'll save that for another day in the interest of time. Uh, thank you, Kelly. That was uh, incredibly impressive. Um, and as they say in Monty Python, and now for something completely different. Um, so we're going to talk to you a little bit today about um, um, about uh, a couple of um, a couple of um, local commercialization um, assistance programs that. Um, I've been working on, along with Rick Greenwald, who I'll introduce to you a little bit later. Um, one is called TREAT that 
Center for the Translation of Rehabilitation Engineering Advances and Technologies, and the other is the New England Pediatric Device Consortium. Um, before we get started, sort of disclosure statement, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Dr. Greenwald is the CEO and co-founder of Symbax, a medical device and consumer health product design and development company in Lebanon, New Hampshire. TREE, the, the center we're going to talk to you about, is part of the NIH Medical Rehabilitation Research Resource Network, called the MR3 Network, funding provided by the National Center for Medical Rehabilitation Research in the uh, NICHD through these two awards. Um, Symbex is the primary awardee for TREAT. None of the activities of TREAT are related to Symbex products. Um, and I guess this is a trigger warning. Uh, in discussing the process of commercialization and commercialization services provided by TREAT and NEBDC, we'll be discussing some commercial products as examples, but none of the commercial products that we're talking about in the process are meant to be endorsements or promotions of those products. It's just if we didn't talk about any examples, this would be really hard to understand. So the learning objective is to recognize two local federally funded commercialization assistance programs, understand the process and barriers of technology commercialization in small markets, uh, and identify some successful and unsuccessful commercialization examples. So um, th these commercialization assistance programs sort of center around this concept. You're getting feedback. You're getting feedback. It might actually be Rick's microphone on. Yeah. Um, the other thing is just don't feed him. I, don't, I won't feed him. <laughs> okay, is that better? Yeah. Turn me down. Which one do you have, sir? I don't know. Four. John, maybe you've got it on 11 and you need to turn it down. <laughs> to 12? <laughs> there you go. All right, I'll try that. So it centers on this idea of the valley of death. And the general, con the general concept of, of the valley of death, the valley of death is a valley in which products go to die. And this is usually the person developing. They have a great idea. They, they get the proof of concept. They maybe get a prototype. And they think, OK, I have this thing. And it's going to make everybody's lives better. And all I got to do is just pedal the rest of the way. And we'll be fine. And the real reality looks something more like this. And that's fine if you know that that's what you have ahead of you, and you have a toll for the cable car and everything in your pocket. But if you think you're doing that, you can have some problems. And this is the first model in the treat that we came up with for this process to help people understand it. So you have a concept or an idea, and you get pilot funding, and you make a prototype, and then you do some testing, and then you have a product, and you sell a lot of that product, you make a lot of money, and then you sit back and come up with another great idea, and you go around and around and around, and life is wonderful. And that's the idea that many people in academia and medicine have of the commercialization process. Um, and in fact, right, this has become a thing in academics. It used to be that academics very much shunned entrepreneurship and commercialization, and now a lot of academic places promote it actively. There are tech transfer offices at different universities who have metrics of companies created. And so they'll happily list all the companies that their faculty have created. And if you actually look at them, most of those companies are a PO box at the university tech transfer office. And those companies will never 
make, sell, or do anything. But it's thought that this is a good thing to do. And I would just say we disagree, <laughs> right? And so, so you have this idea. And so people think that you have this great idea and you follow it all the way through and you start a company and you make something and you become an entrepreneur. But the reality is most things fail. And when they do succeed, that's not the usual path for those things to succeed. So you have technology market assessment, intellectual property evaluation, business development early on to see whether or not this idea has commercial potential. And many of them don't. It may get past that stage and then you look at the product requirements definition, exactly what does this thing have to look like to meet the market demand, and many of them won't. This is the traditional valley of what people call, if you read the literature on the valley of death, this is the traditional valley of death where people work through this, usually through NIH money, SBIR, STTR. It's in sort of the research realm. They develop the idea, they get it to a concept stage, and then that the NIH and the federal government or the NSF loses interest, like you've developed it, you've done these initial tests, they're not interested anymore, or you've used all of the funding that they provide, but it's still not developed to the point where a company looks at it and says, yeah, this is ready for us to invest our time and money in. And so there's this gap of funding between the development money <clears throat> and the commercialization money. And that's the traditional valley of death, but there's a lot of others. And then you have this little problem of you have to actually test it and show that it works. Um, and then it might work. You might have a great idea. You might develop it all the way, and it works. And you can show that it works, and nobody's going to pay for it. And the, the real problem in this process isn't all of these failures, really. That's just the way the world is. The problem is when you go all the way around to here and find out that nobody will pay for it, when you could have known here that nobody would pay for it before you invested all that time and money. And so we're in this sort of interesting process which is challenging in dealing with the people who come to us for help where Early failure is sometimes viewed as a good outcome from the commercialization perspective. Doing the customer discovery and realizing, hey, when I get to the end of this, nobody's going to pay for it. I shouldn't invest my time and somebody else's money in this. Um, but they don't want that. They, right, they want to be the little strip that runs all the way around there. Right? But plenty of things you could have known here, it wasn't going to make it and you spend all of that, and then you get to here and find out, oops. And that's what we try to prevent. The field that we work in, the two fields, rehabilitation and pediatrics, the thing that those two, they don't sound like they have much in common. The main thing that those two areas have in common, and the reason that we have these centers in both of those areas is that they tend to be small markets. right? There's no big blockbuster blockbuster product that's going to make you a lot of money to cover all of the things that don't make it. And so you have to do it right. You have very little wiggle room to get it wrong. And that's why it's sort of an interesting 
sort of area to focus on. So, you know, this is um, the thing called the iBot. The people know about the iBot. So the iBot was Dean Kamen, who came and gave grand rounds a couple years ago, if people were here at that one. Um, but it was like the greatest of the great electric wheelchairs. It had all of, lots of features that made uh, it work really well, right? It could do things that other electric wheelchairs couldn't do, and it you know, got a lot of publicity. And here there's Dr. Kamen with President Clinton, and you know this. You could view this. It's it's an interesting thing as to whether this thing was a success or a failure, and depending on your perspective, it was both. Right. So the fundamental technology that went into this became the Segway, which clearly was a success. But this product was a resounding failure. And it, one of the reasons it was a resounding failure was. Right, what this thing cost was $25,000, give or take. What the reimbursement structure saw was an electric wheelchair. An electric wheelchair reimbursement is $6,000. That's it. So less than 1,000 of these were ever sold. So in terms of, right, so if you knew that ahead of time, if you knew that the market available for this was going to be a total of $6 million, and you could develop it and do that, that was fine. The problem is if you thought the market was $250 million and invested $200 million and got back six, which is about what happened, right? And we'll see this in the other way. So I've learned a lot through this process about what commercialization is or isn't. Many people focus on this side, right, for what commercialization is. It's about the money. But I focus on this side, which is it's about there's not a lot of people who are benefited by this product because there's just not a lot of them out there, right? And to a certain extent, there are breakthroughs we just can't afford was one comment by a University of Michigan professor about the iBot and the status of the commercialization for that. And then there's challenges with clinical implementation and a lot of the things that get developed in rehabilitation to make people's lives, and assistive technologies to make people's lives better, that just don't translate into the system that we have. Right? So nine 90-minute appointments to train someone how to push a manual wheelchair, what a luxury, points out one of my pet peeves about rehab research. Commonly used protocols are unreasonable. And so this, is, this problem of the valley of death has been recognized for a long time. The NIH has been working on lots of attempts to try to solve this problem. So there are these programs like the i program that people actually have to go through for some of the SBIR and STTR programs, which is focused on customer discovery to make sure that people understand whether there is or isn't a market for this thing that they, this new technology they want to develop. One of the things, and, and I think Dr. Greenwald will get into this a little bit later, right, is that who the customer is for medical and rehabilitation technology is often really complicated, and it's often not an answer. So 
we've seen, we've actually had a lot of people who have come to our center after being through those programs, and they still don't understand. They've done a set of customer discovery, but they actually still don't understand who the customer or customers are. So they may have said, oh, I did customer discovery. I talked with a lot of patients, and these are the features they want or don't want. But, you know, people who work in the clinic environment know that what patients want and don't want is not, unfortunately, what the system often gives them. And so if you're developing a rehab technology, it's important what the patient or the user wants and doesn't want, but it's also important what the therapist wants or doesn't want or can or can't do. And then it's often important what the reimbursement structure will pay for, because that often determines what the therapist can or can't do. And all of those people at different stages are customers, and people often focus in on one and miss the forest for the trees. And so this, our treat center is part of this, which is the Medical Rehabilitation Research Resource Network. So this is a program within NICHD and CMRR um, that looked at rehabilitation research and saw that there were a number of areas where it, there were people were struggling to do their research and funded these centralized resources that the rehab research community could come to to help them move products along, teach them areas um, of specialized expertise or give them services. Um, and so this network has a number of elements to it. There's the Rehabilitation Research Resource to Enhance Clinical Trials. That's at uh, UAB. So this is for people who want to do clinical trials and rehabilitation, you can get consultation from them and help them develop your protocols, and they have a lot of experience both in clinical trial design and specifically in the rehabilitation space, which is often challenging because the interventions are usually multifactorial and complex. It's not just giving somebody a pill and a similarly shaped other pill. There's the regenerative medicine uh, resource Center. There's the Center for Simulation, which is a, um, it's a computer program that does biomechanical simulations. That's out at Stanford. There's our center, the TREAT Center. Then there's a Neuromodulation Center uh, and a large data um, center at uh, University of Texas in San Antonio. And so these are there. These are funded to help researchers, a place for researchers to come and get assistance in one of these aspects of their research. So if they're doing some biomechanical research and they could use some simulation to move their things forward, they can go to the Stanford MR3 Center, get training on how to use the, the program, um, and get access to that. For our center, people who have ideas for rehabilitation or assistive technology products can come to treat um, and get assistance in the commercialization process. There's um, small seed grant money, and then there's services and educational things that Dr. Greenwald will tell us about um, in a few minutes. And so the, the um, aims of our center are to provide research translation and commercialization expertise in education to rehab researchers, enable and encourage comparative effectiveness trials for rehab technology, 
and to disseminate this model across the rehab community in ongoing a process of self-evaluation, outcomes monitoring, and continuous improvement. And so who is, so that's what TREAT aims to do. It's now in its eighth year, um, sort of in the middle of our second funding cycle. Um, these are the partners in TREAT. There's Symbax, which we've already talked about. There's TDI, there's the Thayer School of Engineering, um, and the University of Pittsburgh uh, Physical Therapy Department are all partners in this endeavor. And this is the team. There's a lot of people involved in it, several from here and several from elsewhere. Um, and this is my cue to have you focus there on the upper left. Um, and that's Dr. Greenwald, who's the co-director of TREAT with myself. Um, and he's going to sort of give you sort of the, the details and all the interesting content. So that was the, probably the longest introduction that we've ever had in Medical Grand Rounds. So <laughs> go! Um, so Dr. Greenwald got his uh, bachelor's in biomedical engineering from Duke University then a master's from the Thayer School of Engineering, and then his PhD from the University of Utah. And he is an adjunct professor of engineering at the Thayer School. He is the co-founder and president of Symbex, a medical device development company. He is the executive director and co-founder of the nonprofit National Institute for Sports Science and Safety. Uh, he's a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors, He's a member of the, or a former member of the National Advisory Council for NICHD and a member of the NIH Council of Councils. He um, has over 84 reviewed publications and uh, more than 15 issued patents and several more that are pending. So without further ado, to give you the rest of the story, Dr. Richard Greenwald. Thanks, John, and, and uh, for those of you who, who get to work with John on a regular basis, you know how much fun that is. I've had the pleasure of knowing John for uh, uh, decades now, going on multiple decades, and it's always great to work with him and, and solve interesting problems together from different perspectives. I think that's what makes these kinds of collaborations so unique and interesting. So, yeah, John, so first of all, how many of you have ever had an idea that uh, you might think could be commercialized or brought to the clinic as a, um, as a product or a service. Okay. So that's, that's not a bad number. And how many have actually done it? Right. How many of them have tried and failed? Okay. So that's normal. Usually, you know, about 70, 80, 90% fail. But they fail, and I think that's gotten to be in the, in the venture, venture uh, capital world, that's gotten to be a number of 90% that everything fails. And, Everyone seems to go, well, 9 out of 10 fail. And, and the interesting part is it doesn't have to be that way. 9 out of 10 fail probably because they don't figure out how to do it right from the get-go. And, and we think you can, can lower that failure rate by quite a bit by trying to attack the problem from a, a holistic and an end, end scenario of figuring out what's going to go wrong, de-risk the problem from the get-go. What TREAT does, and we'll go into the details of it, was people come in at different levels, clinicians, engineers, um, individuals from the community, maybe who have a disability themselves, come in to, with different ideas. Academics, 
and, and small companies. Large companies even come in to, for help as well sometimes because they don't know exactly how to do this. And they come in at all the different points of the cycle of, of development. They might come in with just an idea on a napkin. They might come in with three levels of prototypes and just need to figure out where they're going clinically. Um, and very frequently they come in with questions about reimbursement and regulatory requirements. And so what we can do is we can provide them different kinds of services. If they need help with product development, we have commercialization expertise and we can do that. Sometimes people need a little, little monetary kick. Um, and so we have the ability through Treat Center to offer some grants. And they usually pilot grants, the maximum is about $25,000, but the in-kind service, the working with our team is probably much, much more valuable than the $25,000. These pitch competitions that you hear have gained great popularity around the country. Everyone wants to have pitch competitions, and they often get ten dollars or $15,000 as prizes. That's great if that's if you really think that's going to get you all the way to the finish line, though, that's a big challenge for a lot of people. They think, all I need is $10,000 and then I'm done. What you probably need is $10,000 and a lot of help from a lot of other people. We provide education, different modules, and I'll show you some of those that allow either online help or in-person help. And we've offered uh, fellowships and sabbaticals for anyone along that continuum in any realm. We've had clinicians, we've had engineering students, we've had... Um, people who want to go into small business, they can come and actually work with us at TREAT for up to a year uh, and learn this process. Usually they have a product idea they want to do themselves, but they can then go on and, and help others in the process learn it. And our goal with that program is really so that we can spread the word. We want this to become a sustainable and, and uh, grown profession around the country so people in all medical devices, but particularly in this challenging field of rehab and pediatric devices, to be able to do this process if they're interested. So it's really easy, right? You just follow all those steps and you're done. <laughs> right? Everyone got that? Yeah, there's a lot of buckets there. I'm not intending for you to read them all. But basically what we did, this is our graphic representation of, of the commercialization process. And the big challenge is you can't ignore any of these buckets. You pretty much have to satisfy and, and understand the outputs of all of them in order to successfully get something on the market. And there, you know, it's everything from the technology side to the clinical and the product evaluation uh, to the business side. And, you know, simple things, and John mentioned some of this earlier, you know, early on you can say to yourself, hey, that you can be realistic and you may say in the rehab space a 5 to $10 million product is really, really successful. There aren't too many that are much bigger than that. And so if you have a product where the life, the total amount of money that could be generated from it is $5 million, you probably can't spend 20 to $30 million developing that technology and getting it on the market. And that's one of the biggest challenges that we face is everyone comes in and they say, well, we're going to solve a problem in stroke. Stroke is a, you know, billions and billions of dollar market. If we just could get 5% of that market, we'd, we'd make a billion dollars. And the first question we ask back to them is, how many rehab companies do you know that are a billion dollar company? Turns out there's one, and that's with 2,000 products in it. So it, it's really hard. You have to be realistic about it. And, and so what we like to do here is break it up into, into the parts of the process, ask someone what they know about these different parts, and then try to hone in on the ones that are the biggest risks for them going forward and eliminate those hard risks first. What most people want to do, if you had your idea, for those of you who raised your hand and had your idea, what's the first thing you wanted to do? You wanted to build it. And when you built it and you saw that it worked, what did you want to do? You wanted to make it better and then you wanted to make it smaller, and then you wanted to make it look better. 
And actually, once you have improved that it works, we like to put a box around it and just say, okay, we bet we can make it and build it for what you want. Now let's figure out whether anyone wants it. And so you go through these processes and you pick where people are along the, the line, where their biggest challenges are, and that's where we focus. Could be everything from designing a better clinical trial, which is really important as well, and we'll talk about a specific example of that in a, in a few moments. It could be just focusing on what you have to do to actually uh, get it through the reimbursement process. Who would pay for it? And that we keep coming back to that because that's probably been the biggest challenge for most products. The government institutions like Dartmouth might spend a ton of money and time uh, supporting the development of a technology only to find out that, yeah, that's just not going to happen in the, in the market. And everyone, you know, they write in their proposals and in their grants, hey, we're going to get a new rehab code. We're going to get a new payment code for that. For those of you in that part of the business, you know, how often do they issue new codes? Never. Our friend Sean Tunis, at, uh, who used to work for CMS and FDA, he asked when, when a payer asks how much, you know, when you say to a payer, how much data do I need in order to get you to, to actually pay for this and reimburse it, the answer typically is just a little more than you have. <laughs> and so it's a very, if you know that, you probably want to start down that path before you make your product smaller, cheaper, um, and look prettier. That's really a, a key component. So there's all these components. It sounds complicated, but you try to break it down into little areas. How do we do that? Well, we try to provide some educational resources. First, we have a variety of presentations that are available online. So you go to Treat, you sign in, you, you create an account, and then you have access to all of these presentations. And they might, they're, they're all about these different elements that, that I was just talking about. Here's one on regulatory strategy shown. So if you don't understand the whole regulatory process and you want to address it, yes, what most accelerators, medical device accelerators and incubators would do is they give you on their website, they say, well, yeah, there's great resource out there. It's called www.fda.gov. Okay, and then you would spend the next three to six months trying to figure out which pages on the website to go to. What we try to do is provide direct resources, break it down into common elements, things that people can understand, and then ask questions off of. We try to talk about things, um, you know, readings, make just readings available so, so people can actually get centered on it without having to search too hard. Very simple example here, uh, what is the classification of your device? Is it a class one, class two, or class three device? That classification, the decision of it, how to get there, is probably one of the most critical decisions in the development of a medical device and affects your regulatory path, the amount of time, the amount of money, the amount of clinical trials you need, um, and about 10 million other things uh, around this whole process. So just someone comes in, and if you ask them, well, what class is your device? And they say, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Rather than sending them to FDA.gov, we can sit down with them. We can ask them to please read this material first. Then we can have a thoughtful uh, and productive conversation rather than just sending them off into the ether. We provide worksheets, really getting down to the nitty-gritty. People often, it's, uh, it's daunting. This process can be daunting, and it's, it's fun when you can make breakthroughs, but when you get stuck, uh, it's really hard. And so we try to provide worksheets that, that are the simple things in life. Ask questions, try to solve the question. If you don't know, ask the question, we'll try to help you. If they're maybe breaking down into what are the advantages and disadvantages, what are the, the easy things to do and hard things, and then just attack them one at a time. We use these to prevent our staff from spending all of their time just talking to people and for getting people uh, what, I, what we'd call dangerous coming in the door. And that's been born out of our experience over the last eight years of where are people coming in, what do they need most, 
and how can our time be used efficiently and their time be used efficiently to move them forward fast. What we want them to do is realize where they are in the cycle, what are the challenges and what can they do about it, are they, um, do they need partners, do they need resources that they don't have and where can they get those. And then to make you know, decisions about whether they should go forward or not and how. A little bit on the fellowship program. Um, you know, what this does is this gives people the opportunity to learn how to do it and then disseminate it further. And uh, this program has actually been a really great success. Several of these folks are uh, either engineering students. Um, Megan was from the Master of Engineering Management program, so she wanted to come in and figure out more about not just healthcare delivery, but how to tie this whole commercialization process to healthcare delivery and the development of valuable tools for the clinical environment. Our colleague Shiley, who came for a year uh, with her PhD, so she had already finished her PhD, and what she really wanted to do was understand how the whole process works. And when she did that, she came through, she, she helped a bunch of clients, and then she got a job down at USU, the, the Informed Services University in Bethesda, right across the street from NIH. And now not only is doing research, but also is like a leading resource down there for this whole commercialization effort. Really interesting how that works. If you just get exposed to this and then practice it a little, you can then go on and do it. These fellowships are fairly immersive. They come in, they basically have to, that we pay them, and they come in and they work for six to 12. It's expected they'll have either a clinical or a technical background. So if any of you find this interesting and uh, have a way to take a sabbatical or something off of your job, please let us know. Uh, we've had people locally and we've had people from all over the country. Uh, really an interesting program uh, that allows for an immersive experience in this whole process. So what have we done so far? Where have we been? Well, we've helped over 300 different people individually, a ton of companies through and people through sabbaticals. We've had well over 1,000 people come and use the resources. That's uh, growing exponentially as those have come online. Um, we've helped directly uh, 52 different companies or projects go through the uh, full process, and we've given out uh, almost, I think there's a little outdated, almost a million dollars in, in research funding um, and development funding to others. What people often want to do, and we've had this, this challenge, is people will come in and they say, I just need $25,000 to build a new mold, you know, a new plastic part. And they get very upset when we say, mm, we want you in our program, but we're not going to give you the $25,000 for that. How about we work together for a while? Let's figure out what you really need. And by the end of it, usually they've used that $25,000. Maybe they realize that they didn't need a $25,000 mold, actually. They needed to buy a $2,000 part from someone else, and the rest of the money gets spent on customer discovery, on some marketing development, on uh, hiring a regulatory consultant. And they, they solve 10 different buckets that I showed you earlier rather than just one. And that's, that's amplification of the government's money. That's exactly what uh, NIH wanted with a program like this. They wanted to be able to leverage their dollars and then have it come back in forms of jobs, in forms uh, of products on the market, and uh, additional research. A lot of people come out of our program and then will now go to the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Program, uh, and develop their products. Those applications tend to get received very well after they've gone through the program because they're really focused on what the program, that program wants. Our awardees, like I just said, have gotten a lot of money. So they've come through with about $8.5 million of follow-on funding, lots of jobs, 
many patents issued and applications, and 12 of the products we helped have been on the market today. And um, you know that may not sound like a lot, but it actually is in the success rate thing. That that's a good number of products, and they're all over the map. They're software, hardware, they're um, and, and the rehab field, as you know, is very wide. So it covers everything um, across many domains, whether it's, uh, in this case, Speedmatch. One was O-rings. We have one for a product for, for the blind uh, that actually just got commercialized by one of our original award winners um, in about a year ago. And she went live about two weeks ago, and she sold 250 units in the first three days. That was just awesome. That was, it was fun to watch. So let's give some examples. I think those are usually quite illustrative. And, and this is probably the one that, that will probably uh, make most sense to most of you. This is uh, uh, a project that came out of HRI over in New York. This is John Wolpaw. He's a famous researcher. He's funded for 25 years at NIH. He's been working on trying to help people post-stroke come up with a rehab protocol that um, stimulates the H reflex in your leg. I won't go into the science too much. But John came, and the first thing he did was he gave us a two-and-a-half-hour lecture on the science. And after all my engineers, I woke them up at the end. I told them it was, it was a great presentation. I told John how great it was. And then he was very horrified to hear that. I said, actually, we believed you after the first two minutes. And you didn't have to tell us. He did say a few things during it, and he brought his whole, he brought what the reason we engaged with them and it was so successful was he brought with him the tech transfer team from their place, a business person who was interested, a, a, a research fellow who was interested in being an entrepreneur. So he had the right team. They didn't know how to do it, but they wanted to engage. They wanted to learn. And what we learned very early on in, in speaking with them was all of the research, when you set up your research studies, what do you want to do? You want to set it up so that it works, so you get a good result so you can publish it. That, that was his goal. And all of the research in this case focused on how many sessions, how many times did you have to be exposed to this therapy, which was basically putting um, um, electrodes on your legs, stimulating them at the right time to help you regain the, the walking reflex. And he did it, but the results talked about things like, well, if after 26 sessions of 45 minutes of having this therapy, they had a great response, so 26 sessions. Second thing was it took 35 to 40 minutes to put the electrodes on, 20 minutes to calibrate, 45 minutes to do the session, 30 minutes to get the patient out, and then paperwork. So you know, we, that was what we got out of this. And I said, so have you ever tried it? Does it work in six sessions, maybe? And is there a way to put this on in a wrap that takes 30 seconds? And he, he looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, why would I do that? I said, well, that's kind of how it works in the clinic. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because they don't have three hours per patient when they get paid $60. And so he, he didn't understand that. And no one in their group understood that. So he said, ah, you need a clinician on board your team. <laughs> you need an advisor, who, someone who does this every day. How would this work? And it was through those discussions and a year of working with them that they've now been able to develop both the, the plan moving forward for how they're going to test this and then how they potentially could build a device. They don't need to build. I, I, didn't, I don't think I brought the slide that shows their machine. It's, it looks like it's from the 70s. And he's like, well, just have to make the machine look better now. I'm like, yes, you do, absolutely. But that's not the gate. That's not the thing that's going to make this work. If you can't get it down into a couple of sessions, non-calibrated, you just slap these things on, hit go, 
and have the therapist get feedback and the patient get feedback, this probably won't be successful clinically. Great example, happy to answer questions. That's probably the, the most relevant one. Uh, here was an emergency room doctor who came in with the idea of how to um, immobilize patients without preventing extubating, but also not over-restrain them in the bed. And, and um, she was over in Rutland at, at the medical center there, and it was very interesting because she had prototypes, and she also had <clears throat> some experience with how to use them, but the challenge here was how do you actually build a device that could solve some of the real problems that exist around using this? So how do you clean it? So her original prototypes had materials that, you know, in that environment, you're going to get stuff on them, all kinds of stuff. And so how do you get the materials that could be cleaned? Is it a disposable or a reusable uh, product? If it's, how would it work in the, um, how would it be applied? How do you prevent someone from getting hurt with it? Safety and that one. And nothing like this had been developed, so it had to go through a regulatory process. So again, we were able to break it down into its constituent components, and in this case, actually building the first prototype, one that people could use and see, turned out to be valuable. And so we did industrial design to make it look interesting, but what we didn't do was go all the way to how would you make it. We, we did a black box with her that said, yeah, you know, this could be made for 10 or $12 in volume. That works in the system. That works from a business standpoint. Now let's go back and give you something that you can walk, go to other uh, departments, show them and say, would you use this? What would be your problem? You have to bring it to the, the nurses. You have to bring it to the other caregivers who are there and ask them, how would this work? How would this affect your workflow? If you don't do that in this whole process, involve all the people, you will make a critical mistake that later you can't fix because you, in rehab, you get one shot at these developments because the market, you don't have enough money to do it. If you don't do it right the first time, you're probably not going to get there. Here's another example in, in where the small market came in. There was a uh, clinician, a doctor at uh, Mass General, Pat Andrus, and she was developing um, a manual muscle testing device or, or uh, chair that would allow positioning for patients with ALS. And she was doing her research on it, and she had a really kludgy one, uh, but she kept getting asked for another one. Hey, we, we could use this in our work. It would be really interesting. And then it turned out that what this was really good for was to do comparative studies of different drugs. Now, all of a sudden, the pharma companies were calling her and saying, well, we want one. And she's a, you know, she's a researcher at, at MGH. She didn't know how to do that. And so we were able to help her develop what is effectively a, a, a really low-cost product using the challenge here was we use almost entirely off-the-shelf components. So we didn't go and redesign everything. We used seat cushions that existed in other rehab products. We suggested that she use these, um, this base that was existing already. It had to be modular, things that could take it apart. How do you ship it from location to location? So you could take it apart and put it in a little box so it didn't cost $1,000 to ship. had to be heavy. How could, how could you make it for different size patients? That's what all those adjustments are. And a lot of these pieces come from other products that already exist on the rehab space. And you just go out and you call those companies and you say, hey, you have 100 of those in stock. Can we buy seven? Because really what her market was was 10 to 15 units a year. So it's not a bad business. By the way, you make a lot of money, reasonable amount of money doing that if that's mailbox money. And every year someone's making and you're getting a payment off of it. So it turns out she didn't want to be a business person. She wanted to get this out there. And so she engaged with TREAT to do the design, the development, and transfer it to a group, a manufacturing group, 
so that if someone called, she could just point them there, they would sell it to them, and the drug company would be great. Shows you small products, limited market, still good opportunity was able to be developed and is now on the market and available uh, for a very important purpose of figuring out the, the comparative effectiveness of various drugs for ALS. I'll just briefly touch on, then we should go for questions, I assume is the right time. Um, our other center, New England Pediatric Device Consortium. This is part of the FDA's Pediatric Device Consortium program. There are seven centers around the country. Uh, we've been doing that for about five years now, and it's very much focused on the same idea uh, around pediatric devices. The FDA has made a really concerted effort to try to be more friendly over the last decade. For any of you who've engaged with the FDA, 10 years ago we would always talk about how the FDA was the block. They were always the biggest problem. And I think they've really done a nice job of, of trying to be more user-friendly. And in the area of pediatric devices, Congress got involved and said, you must, because there was a lot of complaints about uh, from the public that pediatric, so pediatric devices are not just small adult devices. For those of you who do that, you know that, right? But a lot of people just think, well, you just take the adult one and you shrink it down and that'll work. Doesn't work, and it doesn't work. Kids are not all the same. Kids are defined from neonatals up to 18 or 21, depending on your definition. And what works for a four-year-old doesn't work for an eight-year-old. The market's tiny. There's tons of problems, and each one of those problems has a very small number. So no one in the in the investment community will invest in pediatric medical devices. So we have the exact same problems we had in rehab, and we were able to apply it and get another center funded. And our approach is very unique to compared to the other PDCs that are out there in the country because rather than just giving $50,000 grants and, and then saying go to our university and, and do research with our researchers, we were saying let's break this down into its constitutive components and do the same process I just described. We've had great success with that. We've similar outputs, uh, 15 devices that are on the market. We've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of these pediatric devices, and some of those companies have gone on to do really well. Um, one of them is about an epinephrine pen, for example, and uh, they've been able to raise tens of millions of dollars to go on. Happy to answer any questions about uh, either TREAT or any PDC uh, and this process and method. I think our goal here was just to introduce um, that these centers exist locally, and you might find interest in them. If you have interest and you want to either participate, learn more, for an idea you have, or even just help. If you want to come in, some people just volunteer and say, we want to review some of these proposals, uh, connect them with our colleagues and our network. Uh, feel free to let us know. We're here, and we, we'd love to work with you to, to do that. Oh, uh, Yeah, I can skip that. I think just... So we have uh, left good time for questions. If anybody has, please. I wonder if you could look at this following thing. I've become very interested in, in uh, rehab over the last uh, couple of months. Is there any possibility that this, this energy towards more esoteric, very exciting, but limited things is limiting the energy to relate to provider, to patient dialogue, information, an example? Go to physical therapy. You're given ideas of what to do. You go home. You forget it. Would, is there something that you can think of that might have a way to improve that concept? It might, you know, even something like that. I forget what that's called, where you, where it's done over the, you know, te telemedicine. My my point is, is there, is it possible that all of this energy 
or what you guys are talking about may be better better used in a in a provider patient dialogue process. Something like having people come to the house, make sure you're doing it right. Making sure that when you leave when when you're evaluated by the, the physical therapist, that person knows that you're actually learning what it is she's talking or he or she has talked about. Um, yeah, so what I can tell you about that is so I sat on a study section for the NIBIB on um, some product development uh, RFA, and there were a, a number of in within rehab, and there were a number of uh, projects um, that very much focused on that. So the idea of um, tele rehab, that is the you know go home and do your right. Most, most physical therapists know that. Um, they're swimming upstream when they give somebody a home exercise program, and they know they can't do. They can't have them come to the clinic and do everything that they need to do in the session because they won't get covered, and the patients don't want to travel that much. And so they know when they send you home with your little sheet of right, and that, and that's actually an innovation where they print out the exercises for you so that you remember, right? Um, so there are, were a number of projects looking at using things like uh, very cheap, like the the Connect, right, the video game thing, or we, right, to have people doing their home exercise where the therapist could could sort of tune in and see what they were doing, and if they were doing it right, one, if they were doing it, and if they were doing it right, they could leave them alone and not waste their time, so that they could free up time for the people who weren't doing it right because the, that's their highest yield, right? People want to do it, but they don't remember or they didn't quite get it, or right? And then they could spend their time on that. And then if they had extra time, then they could work with the people who weren't doing it to try to motivate them to understand to do it. So there's been, there's a number of things out there that people are working on to try to do that. The, the role of technology in that is that nobody can afford or is going to pay for the army of people that it would take to send therapists to everybody's house to do what we'd all really like them to do. Um, and so there are people looking at how can technology kind of bridge that gap, at the very least to identify who's doing it and doing it right so you don't waste your time with them, just let them go and then focus on, on the other thing. But I think very much the, the interaction with the therapist is an important part, and the technology usually doesn't succeed if it all it does is try to replace that. It succeeds when it enhances that. And the, the answer to your question is yes, we're doing it with many of the companies coming in. The, the biggest challenges uh, you have to deal with are, everyone talks about wearables. Wearables are a big topic, but wearables that provide meaningful data, so a Fitbit, something you wear on your hand, that the accuracy of that is not relevant for most clinical applications. So you have to provide technology in an easy way, communication in an easy way, that allows that it enables a clinical use uh, that makes some sense. So, so just an interesting uh, presentation. I think it's really important stuff. Um, in my role as a diabetologist, I get visited about every three years by a group of students from the Tuck School who have won a prize for some diabetes innovation. Almost invariably, it's a terrible idea, but they've got all this money now to do this. <laughs> so, 
So my, my question you understand is, the problem. <laughs> my question is, is there a clearinghouse just for clinicians to submit ideas of things that they need that could then be used as a place where people could look into these things? Because that's really what most of us don't have the time to pursue these. So, yeah, so, so yes. we sort of skipped this slide. So this was in, in the design of the, the New England Pediatric Device Consortium, taking what we had learned from our initial work with TREAT. So written into that grant and part of our process was this thing called the target challenge model, where we would have people sort of come in and apply their ideas, but every year we put aside money and time of a large group to identify what's a major problem in pediatrics that needs to be solved. Um, and then we would put out a focused call for that facing that problem. So going to the clinical community to identify what are the problems, because you're exactly right. What often happens is the engineering students are off running their thing and the clinicians are struggling with their problems and they don't talk to each other. So this was one approach to that at, um, at uh, Mass General uh, Hospital for Children, they, they, and we later instituted one here within pediatrics, these things called picnics, which were basically getting a group of clinicians together over some food and saying, you know, what was a, what's a struggle you're having in clinical practice that you think has a potential technological solution that we could then send out to the engineers and let them know that this is a problem we're solving as opposed to their widget that then they have to find a problem to try to solve with it. So, yes, that's, that's exactly question. right. And, <laughs> and frequently that part of, again, who the customer is, in, you just tell people do customer discovery, but they don't know who the customer is. And often it's, again, not one person. It's the patient, but it's also the clinician. Um, and so that we often spend a lot of time pushing people to you need to go talk to some clinicians and find out what they really need and what they would really do or not do. The hardest part is telling a clinician that their idea probably doesn't have the legs to get all the way there and they'll just tell you you're wrong and move on, try again. Uh, it's really valuable when they go through the process and they come to the conclusion, oh, I understand why. And maybe you give them an alternate path to get there that's slower uh, and maybe a little less ambitious. Yeah. We had one of our uh, early uh, sabbatical people was a professor of engineering at Rutgers who had been working on these things, and he had all of these uh, ideas on the shelf from he'd gone through a number of grants and developed all these things, and then they were on the shelf, and he was sort of getting to that point where he's like, you know, I'd really like to, one of these to get out of my lab. Um, and he had started this company, and he thought he was coming to us to help him take this thing that he developed that he thought was his best idea and develop it. And he was with us for a couple of months, and he realized it was a, it was a robotic device to do upper extremity rehabilitation. Um, and he realized he was never, ever going to sell that, period, because the market would not support it. And what he did instead was understood what the therapists would and could use and then developed a whole new product to meet actual that demand. Um, and it was completely knowable from the start. He had just had no way to find it out before or didn't know how to find it out before. Dr. Marins, did you have your hand up? Great presentation. It's also the intersection of NIH funding at a time when NIH funding is going down. 
but we have an administration that's focused, very focused on the industry and developing businesses, and, and this, is in, this is really interesting. Also commenting on it, we, we get so many requests. I deal with Tuck all the time. It has, we have a great idea, we have a great idea, we've got loads of money, and I'm just like, you know, scratching my head. There's also a lot of work at Dartmouth College, even with the college students in the engineering, they've got an engineering course where they're developing things. I think there's so many opportunities, even when you ask around this room, there's a lot of people have thought of like, making something, it might be a research study, but it might be a thing. And I think that that idea about what are the forums, not just in terms of the challenges, but what are the forums when you sit down like with the, with people in, in, the, in the New Spine Center and other places like what would work? I, I think this is amazing and something that probably most people haven't really realized existed. So, so. Yeah, it take, takes a village to do this work well and your tech transfer office is a piece of that puzzle. Often that's what you're told is just, hey, go fill out the paperwork and tech transfer will take care of it for you. They actually are just a gatekeeper and they can introduce the process to you and, and help you maybe protect your idea. But from that standpoint, the tech transfer office is a couple of people and how are they going to understand all the domains of the world? If you came to me with a nuclear imaging technology, I'd have to say, well, let's go find the expert in that. That's not our space. So how can they expect to do that? It takes having these resources in our community here, highly valuable. Um, we should take advantage of it. And with that, we're right on time. And please join me in thanking Dr. Greenwald.